Greetings all and welcome to the Courageous Path podcast with me, Rachel Horton White and Soulful Work Intuitive Consulting. You can learn more about me at www.soulfulworkconsulting.com and don't forget to subscribe or follow this podcast here to get the latest interviews as they come up. I am an intuitive coach, spiritual teacher, and writer. I work with people searching to uncover who they really are and what they're meant to be doing. Merging the spiritual with the everyday through thoughts, emotions, and energy, I support people like you to break through stuck patterns and find your true inner self. I hope you enjoy today's interview. I'm so delighted to share today an interview with my dear friend, Liz Colburn, called Angels Among Us. And in this interview, Liz is going to share through her life experience, the magical encounter she's had with angelic beings, with love and with light. And you'll also hear her talk about how she shares this love and light with everyone she encounters in her life, in my opinion. Hope you enjoy. Liz Colburn lives in Portland, Maine with her husband, Dan. She has a daughter, Lauren, who lives with her wife in Sacramento, California. Liz works with people in the beginning of life and in the end of life. She's a part-time nanny for young children and has spent time with many people in end-of-life work through hospice and other organizations. Liz is on staff with the Edgework Moving Through Grief, Trauma, and Loss residential workshops and also does spiritual mentoring for young adults. Knowing that you only can take people as far as you're willing to go yourself, Liz comes to this work honestly because she has faced the deep wounds of her own traumatic early childhood. As she was not seen and heard as a child, she loves being present with children so that they can feel seen, heard, and loved. And as a side note, Liz has taken care of my own two children for years and she has brought them so much love. Here's the interview with Liz. Good morning, Lizzie. Good morning, Rachel. I'm so, so excited to be talking to you after many months of planning this. Um, It is such an honor and a blessing and a privilege for me to be talking to you, one of the most important people in my life who has, you've introduced me to so many people and ideas and opportunities that have changed my life. You are an angel on earth. (laughs) So I um, wanted to talk with you about your path, your spiritual path, some of your experiences with other realms, mm-hmm. and um, and your work healing people, guiding people, mobilizing people. You are mm-hmm. such an inspiration for so many, and everywhere you go, you shine your light. <laughs> Thank you. It's true. So can you talk a little bit about your life, the kind of life that you live now and how you've got to be to the place of living it? <laughs> well, I think um, I think that um, there's the story of me, which is stuff that I've done and stuff that you know has happened to me, and yet I'm not my story. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I love this quote by Eckhart Tolle, which is, I don't have a life, I am life. Mm, yeah. So when someone asked me to talk about my life, um, 
I kind of giggle inside because it's just what's happening right now with you. On, on the other hand, we all have our story and stuff that has happened to us mm -hmm. and has, um, and certainly for me, um, so many of the events, especially my early childhood, have brought me into a deeper place of mm -hmm. humility and um, of knowing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what and then I know and and can you talk about some of what you well maybe this is your life that you just explained to me yeah but. you know it is it is I mean it's it's maybe it's a matter of semantics but yeah. it's just a, a, a different shift that I've had yes when talking about my life it's yes. I kind of think about oh yeah. yes all those things happen mm -hmm. and all the positive all the difficult mm -hmm. and yet here we are and you you heal people with grief work, right? <laughs> well, I I um I understand the word heal yeah. and healing. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, it doesn't really fit mm. because I don't feel that I heal. I that I heal. For me, to facilitate means to make easier. Mm -hmm. And I think mm. of every human being as whole, and um, and. Uh, resourceful yes and so I, I see that in a person um, because I have I've had to find that in myself yes. when I felt so broken in my life yes and yeah. so um, something about that word for me feels yeah, like that it's they're a, not broken <laughs> well the, or that yeah. also that I'm said I'm somehow um, healing them puts mm -hmm. me in a yeah, in a, in a hierarchical sense, a little bit mm -hmm. like I'm healed, and so therefore I'm healing mm -hmm. you. And and I know that it's a beautiful word, and it, it fits some people, but it just doesn't seem to yeah. resonate. Do you, what, so what work do you do with other people in your life? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, um, I uh, facilitate a, a grief, trauma, and loss workshop a few times a year. Mm -hmm. It's residential, and it's based on the work of Elizabeth Kubler Ross, who was a psychiatrist from Switzerland mm -hmm. who came to, to the United States. She was instrumental in bringing hospice to the United States. And she also wrote a book back in the 60s, I think, called On Death and Dying. And it was the first time, I mean, it was, she basically brought the conversation to the United States or to the West about death. Mm. And she worked with death and dying. And out of that work, she is the person who came up with the different stages of loss and grief. Yes. You know, the five stages we all hear about denial, and de anger, depression, bargaining, acceptance. Yes. So I have been so fortunate um, because I, through events in my life, I um, was trained by the people who worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Kubler directly and uh, I do these workshops where we facilitate, which again is to make easier, mm -hmm. um, people in going into deep trauma and loss mm -hmm. and grief, mm -hmm. anger, and we, it's an externalization workshop, so people externalize these feelings that are trapped in the body. So we're trained to bring people out of their story, which is mm -hmm. telling the story is important, and it's also important to go into the body and to um, facilitate. What is, so when you meet, say externalize, what do you mean? What does that mean? 
Externalize means um, when you have stuff that's inside that's yeah. just been layers and layers, you know, adding up, adding up, adding up. And to externalize would be to take those emotions and those feelings, which are really stored in, in a, on a cellular level in the body, and and emote them to cry them out, scream them out. Um, you know, sometimes it's with words, sometimes it's just with punching you know, things. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Releasing them, right? Yes, yeah. releasing them, exactly. And you know, for most, for a lot of people on the planet, if they have a loss, they have family, friends. You know, maybe they haven't had a trauma history. And they can get through that with the support of their church, their neighbors, their friends, their family. For so many people who have been traumatized as children in particular, um, who don't have a safe place to go, and then whose trauma is very extreme, um, this, is a, this is the kind of situation that would most benefit them, I, I believe. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't help everyone. Mm -hmm. But for so many, I mean, where do you go when your child gets hit by a car? Who, I mean, people want to be helpful. They really, their hearts are in the right place. And yet, this person needs to grieve in a way that is not comfortable for others to often witness. Yes. And if you've had a trauma history, one loss brings up all past losses mm -hmm. and so some people come to our workshop because they're going through a terrible divorce and they don't know why they can't get out of bed in the morning it just seems so extreme mm -hmm. and they come to, because they want to work on that and then before you know it they're working on yeah. you know having been sexually abused as a child mm -hmm. or um, beaten as a child yeah. and so yeah, so it's beautiful work. Yeah. I just, I love how I'm talking to you about this today because I literally have just written about processing negative emotions and, and did some of that work myself and I've been living in that space, which is why how it works. Yeah. It's me the universe <laughs> that sometimes, you know, a lot of my work is about focusing on positive and getting to a positive future place, but I've noticed that it's not always possible and in fact it can be infuriating if not you know demeaning I don't know what the right word is for somebody to say like just focus on the positive you know when uh -huh. somebody's feeling all these feelings um because I mean the getting out of the not getting out of the bed in the morning obviously that's not something that's a long-term sustainable plan for people so uh -huh. it's, the, I, the goal is to work past that so you can get to a better place but it's just it's just so important to do this uh -huh. that I think our society we don't often take the time to explore the negative emotions and often we just distract ourselves or push them away. Well, yeah, I think what happens is that we learn as children, children for the most part are incredibly resilient. So we learn survival techniques. And some of those techniques could be to become a caretaker and take care of everyone else. It could be we dissociate. For some people they have DID, dissociative identity disorder. Mm. Um, which used to be called multiple personality, but they've renamed it. Interesting. Wow. Um, and 
so, and some people start drinking at a young age. Some people do drugs. Some people get addicted to sex or food. And all those things are tools that people use, and they work. Mm-hmm. But they don't. For a little while, They right? work for a while <laughs> right. until they don't work anymore. Yeah, yeah. So often we get people who have used everything, and it's just not working anymore. And there's, um, Yeah. <laughs> when you because you said people don't take the time I think sometimes you just have to be hit over the head right with you know right <laughs> yep that's often how it works I've noticed so what <clears throat> made you uh, come to, into doing this work what brought you to brought you here so so for so many of us who work with others in trauma um, in, including everyone on staff um, mm-hmm. that I work with we all have trauma histories and um, my, the trauma that happened to me as a young child, um, I, it was a little bit of a mixed blessing in a way. Because I've always known throughout my whole life that I had an angel with me. Mm-hmm. So ever since I was little, I just, no matter how, I grew up in a very chaotic family of nine, Irish Catholic, alcoholic, you know, just kind of crazy. Um, lots of poverty when we were really little. My dad stopped drinking when I was seven and we bought our first house mm-hmm. when I was nine. But my mom brought seven children home to seven different dwellings. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. It was very chaotic and very um, kind of crazy. And yet, and yet, my both of my parents, regardless of all that they did and didn't do, they were very, very intelligent, and they both had an incredible sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And Where so, <laughs> so, so there was a lot of laughing, um, but there was a, there was quite a bit of insanity, and um, going on. And so, you know, we all all of us learned how to cope with it. And I had done years of work, you know, um, remembering that my father molested me from the time I was probably, uh, well, my first memory is I was in the crib. And um, he, uh, so this continued until I was seven. And then when he stopped drinking, it never happened again. It became from overt molestation to covert, which is just comments and objectifying and that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And as I was peeling the layer of this onion of all the things um, that I had repressed to survive, um, and one of the techniques I used was dissociation. Instead of having different personalities per se, I would just go in like in the corner and just sort of watch what was happening. And now, uh, oh, which doesn't happen anymore. I guess if I got super triggered, it might happen, but it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't happen anymore because I know. Well, because a I have released so much of that out of my being, mm-hmm. and it was a long process. I bet I was working on these issues for fifteen years, mm-hmm. um, and part of the impetus for me to work on this stuff was my daughter. 
<laughs> because I was sort of like the caretaker of my mom of seven kids. She'd say, oh, Elizabeth, you're all I have. And I'd be like, well, you have six other kids and a husband. Mm-hmm. So I thought I was pretty special growing up because I was all my mom had. And um, so with my daughter, I just thought I'm not going to lean on her. I'm going to never put anything on her and make her feel like she has to be an adult. But she could see that things weren't quite right with me. She She's a beautiful old soul. She came into the world that way. And when she was seven, she'd look at me and say, Mom, are you okay? And I'd be, have a big smile on my face. I'm good. I'm fine. And... But inside, I wasn't. You know, I wasn't fine. And I realized that, yes, I'd been able to provide for her. I was a single mom at that point and do all these things. But I thought, oh, my God, she's going to grow beyond me. I'm emotionally, I need to figure out what's going on inside of me. Because I was, you know, feeling very uh, depressed inside. and But this veneer of being happy wasn't working anymore, mm-hmm. like we talked about earlier, these tools, mm-hmm. um, these absolute brilliant ways of the children learn to survive, it wasn't working. And I think having children, some often when I listen to people, it pushes us to, yes. you know, we mm-hmm. want to be there for them. So I started looking into my <coughs> adult church. I went and started doing adult children of alcoholics stuff and... Mm. Anyway, this went on for years and years and years. And as I was thinking about training with the Kuba Ross people, somebody said to me in the group, I think you should go out to this workshop out in Arizona. Uh, Was it Arizona? No. Where was it? It was in North Carolina at the Avila Center. She said, I think you should go to this. It's like five days, and it's with Sharon Tobin. And so I thought, oh, great. I'll go and... I'm going to, quote, unquote, learn some things to be a better facilitator. <laughs> but this woman knew that there was something deeper underneath. And I, because I thought, what what else could there be? Mm-hmm. And so I went and um, there was something underneath. Mm-hmm. And, and this was my first angel experience mm-hmm. as I was uncovering these experiences. My first angel experience was um, remembering something. And I don't need to go into a lot of detail, but just in general, my brother and I, when I was three and he was five, we were picked up by a couple of men. We lived in the rural part of Illinois at the time. And we were taken into the woods. And um, there were things that happened to us that were um, extreme. And at one point um, in my remembering, I stopped breathing. And the therapist I was working with, you know, she had to keep bringing me back. And I just kept, you know, I just kept stop. I just stopped breathing. And what I realized is that if there is such a thing as being scared to death, mm-hmm. that's sort of what I feel as though I was having a near-death experience in what was happening to me. And so I left my body, and I was in the arms of an angel. Mm-hmm. And the, the there was no face, there was no, there weren't any wings, but I was being held in this white light, 
and I was floating. I was I went from feeling terrified to feeling like a feather. Mm-hmm. I went from being um, physically so um, in so much pain to feeling no pain. And I was just floating, and I I realized that I had no weight, and I was in completely held by this white beautiful light and then I looked down and I said I have to go back I have to go back for my for my brother and my brother and I were inseparable growing up and as I had this memory I realized this is the experience we had that bonded us mm-hmm. I mean he used to sleep at the bottom of my bed from that time on and um, we were just inseparable we were so connected and he to this day has not remembered this and doesn't want to and that's why I don't mention his name because I have lots of brothers (laughs) but um, and that's fine that's fine he's not he's just not he doesn't have any memory at all he no Um, but we've communicated about it throughout our whole lives and so I kept saying I have to go back I have to go back for, for my brother and in that experience, what I remember as I was reliving it was this message. And it just was over and over and over and over again. The only thing that's real is love. That's the message that I was so blessedly given at age three. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's real is love. Everything else is woundedness. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's real is love. Everything else is woundedness. Huh. And so I somehow, I somehow got through that. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and then when I was, I, I, I stopped, I, I became very quiet. And I'm kind of a gregarious person, <laughs> but I went inward to the point where when I went to first grade, I didn't go to kindergarten because in rural Illinois you didn't have to, and I went to a Catholic school. And I was only five, and I was so um, traumatized in my being and that I didn't talk. And so the nun called my mother, and she said, Elizabeth isn't a bad child. She just doesn't talk. She doesn't talk at all. I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> Because this, well, I've had lots of nuns in my life, and this particular order, they were BVMs, um, Blessed Virgin Marys. We called them black-veiled monsters. <laughs> they were so mean. I eventually had some beautiful, wonderful nuns when we moved to Michigan. Um, the church in Michigan was very advanced compared to where we were in this little town. But the nun told me that I was retarded, and she told me that I would never learn to read. Yep, and she flunked me. And then the next year I have no memory of. It's like I was so far gone, I have no memory whatsoever of my second grade year at all. So then we're moving to Detroit. My dad had stopped drinking and we we were driving to Detroit where my mom had grown up. And we were all chanting, no more Catholic schools, no more Catholic <laughs> schools. And we get to Detroit, and the first thing my mom did was enroll us into this Catholic school called Presentation. 
And the nuns were clad in white from head to toe. Interesting. And they were just, I couldn't believe, Sister Mary Christopher, third grade, she had a brown face and wide shoulders, and she had a long white flowing gown, and she was smiling all the time. She was jolly. And so I have such a clear memory of sitting in a little circle of wooden chairs, you know, and we were supposed to read the story, and then she did everybody read the story? Yes, sister. And then when she got to me, I couldn't read in school. I could read at home, but if, I mean, the, the book could be upside down, I wouldn't know the difference. I just dissociated. Interesting, yeah. I could not read anything in school. So when she got to me, I must have felt safe enough with her because I just burst into tears. I said, I'm retarded, I'm stupid, I can't read. I don't know, I, you know, I'm so sorry. I lied, I said I read it, but I didn't read because I don't know how to read. And in those days they called the, where you hang up your coats, the cloakroom. Mm -hmm. So she took me to the cloakroom and the way I envisioned it is she picked me up with her angel arms and she put me in her lap. And she said, Elizabeth, you are my brightest student. And no one had ever said that to me. And yeah. I was so scared and so afraid that I didn't know how to learn. I didn't know how to take in information. You know, it was just really difficult yeah. um, <clears throat> when you're just surviving. Mm -hmm. And so, from then on, I, I have, I used to have, I don't know where they are now, but I started getting straight A's. I graduated high school, magna cum laude. Um, but deep in my core, I felt like I, you know, you don't forget those deep, I felt like yeah. I was fooling everyone. Uh -huh. That, oh, I'm just fooling people. I'm, I'm really, really, in my core was shame and fear and, but I could make it look good on the outside mm -hmm. by doing, studying and doing my homework. and. So I didn't go to college, um, and yeah, that's kind of. <laughs> I'm just so I have to get my interviewer role because I've been so moved by everything you're saying. Mm, well, um, the mother, you're the mother of two young children. Yeah, and yeah. that is partly why I'm working with children. You take care of my children. Mm -hmm. I didn't mention that at the beginning, but I, uh, you've been. I mean, so people know that you you are like an angel in our lives, and I believe I I do believe that there are people who are, and I said this to you. I know maybe you kind of <laughs> don't know if it's real, but I believe people like you are literally the embodiment of, of angels. Maybe you were you know part of you actually is, <laughs> oh. and in for you to have gone through such suffering has enabled you to help so many people and you know with your work and then in hopefully through this people who are listening who may identify with some of what you've been through and you know it's amazing to me just from my um my connection with and interest in angels right now I've been studying a lot and I also interviewed somebody else Matthew Francis mm -hmm. who had also been through incredible trauma as a child and he also had angels come to him. Uh -huh. He heard um, music and heard voices. Uh -huh. And so it's just, it's 
to me, I, I just find it, it's this amazing source of comfort for people. And some people say, oh, I don't know if I believe. And, you know, I have had some, not quite as much connect in that, in those times of, um, with angels, but I believe that they're here to let us know we're not alone and we're going through this human experience. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, <clears throat> uh, can you talk? So there's another story about an angel. Uh-huh. <laughs> Would you mind sharing that, that incredible story about yeah, Archangel no. Michael? <laughs> yes, yes, I, 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 I do. I think that's a, an incredible experience that I had. So, um, so in my personal work of trying to get moved through so much that was stored in my being and in my body, um, I ran across the teachings of Eckhart Tolle. Yes. And um, I've never followed, I mean, I grew up in the Catholic Church. I got thrown out of religion class in like fifth grade, right. fourth grade, just for asking questions. I was so curious, like, well, how could, how could God, you know, um, what if somebody didn't know it was Friday and they ate meat and they didn't know it was right. Friday? I know. Or what it's about so people who never even heard of Jesus and they're in limbo? None of it made sense to me. Right, good. And I remember, you know, saying, asking questions like, well, Jesus was a carpenter and humble. I don't know if I use that language in sixth grade or whenever, but I just said, why would, why would, I don't think Jesus wanted us to worship him. Mm-hmm. Because Jesus came to teach us love, not worshiping him and bringing him gold. So awesome. It just didn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. They probably didn't like that. that they didn't. No. <laughs> Two things happened. I would go to the mother superior for one and get in some trouble. And the other was they answered all the questions with this. That's a supernatural mystery. <laughs> a supernatural mystery is a mystery that we cannot explain, but we accept it because it is the word of God. That's what they were taught to it, say. Well, I remember it because it was told to me so, so many times. Like, Supernatural mystery. So then when they changed wow. the whole thing after Vatican II that you could eat meat on Friday and <laughs> things that I thought people were going to hell for, I was just beside myself. I was sobbing in the principal's office or the mother superior. It's like, well, if if it's a supernatural mystery that we can't explain because it's the word of God, then how can, you know, how can we change that ourselves? You know, I just didn't make any sense so to me. Great. So great. more of us were like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just basically, you know, I, I always felt connected to something greater than myself, but I just could not connect with this particular, or any religion for that matter. Yeah. So when I listen to Eckhart Tolle speak, um, he's the only person that I've ever heard speak in that capacity that I feel like he's speaking to the knower in me. Like I don't, he doesn't want people to follow him. Mm-hmm. I've seen him a few times, but it doesn't matter whether you're seeing him or not because he's like in a chair, but he's not really there. Yeah. He's transcended ego. Yeah. And um, so I had an experience my mother was sick with C. diphyllitis in the nursing home, and I got it because I was with her all the time. Mm-hmm. And I took these huge, giant pills. Um, they were just, you can only take them like twice in your life. They're just really flagile, is it what it's called. Oh, yeah. And it made me so sick, and I was supposed to go to a wedding. My niece was getting married in Norway, Oslo, Norway, and I had my tickets. 
and I was going to facilitate a workshop out in California, and I was so sick. I just, for six weeks, I was sick. And I was drinking a lot of water, but I wasn't taking in enough electrolytes. And so um, I finally got, finally cleared up, and then three days later, it came back with a vengeance. It came back even worse. So I had to go back on the flagell, and I was very weak and quite sick. But I, uh, just like when I was in that experience as a three-year-old, where I was... It, what was happening was so intolerable that I couldn't be in my body and is when I had my angel experience. Well, this this experience, I was just so, it, it's really physiological. I was just dehydrated, basically. But I was having these experiences. So I don't know what, you know, if that just opened me up for these experiences. Yeah. So I'm willing to admit that that, you know, mm-hmm. but... I um I didn't go to the wedding, but I was determined to go out to California, and I I was starting to feel better, but I I had no idea how dehydrated I was. I was extremely dehydrated, mm. and I I did get on the plane, and while I was on, I got off my my, it was the first flight I was on, that I had this experience. I was sitting in my seat and I went to the bathroom and I was I was walking to the bathroom. I remember so clearly. Um, I was walking to the bathroom and I looked over and there was a, a man in middle, maybe late 30s, early 40s. He had dark hair and wire square rim glasses. Hmm. And he looked at me and I looked at him and we smiled. And I went into the bathroom, and I came out, and I went to my seat, and then he was sitting next to me. And I realized that this this was, you know... Was it normal? Something... Something was up, yeah. Because yeah. he wasn't sitting there when you saw him the first time. No, no, no. And he was sitting next to me, and... One thing I remember is this tremendous sense of humor. We were laughing and crying, and um, and I'm I'm wondering what it was for like for the people around me, or whether this experience was totally internal. Uh-huh. But he was just telling telling me things like, "Don't take your thoughts so seriously," and. Um, life is, you know, this is, it's not that serious. And, um, which I've kind of always known because I've always had a pretty good sense of humor, but I just, I, it was just amazing. And so he, um, he said, oh, there was somebody, there was, this was at a time we'd gone into Iraq, I think. Trying to remember now where, what date it was, but Anyway, there was a lot of stuff about the Middle East. There was a guy sitting in front of us. He had one of the tur- a turban on his head, mm-hmm. and he was laughing. And he said, "People are so afraid of him," you know. And he started using terminology like Ayatollah Kakamami. I mean, I remember it so clearly. And we were laughing and laughing mm-hmm. and laughing. And then he looked me in the eye and he said, "You need to go deeper," because hmm. I said, "You know, I just want to be free from my." thinking mind. I want to be free from my ego. And he kept saying, you just need to go deeper. But there was something so practical about this being. 
and so um, real. It wasn't like that first experience where it was light and I was right. outside my body. I mean, this was like it was really like grounded. A human seemed like a human. Yes, he was. Mm-hmm. He, it felt he like might, this, he might have been. Yeah. Might have been. Yeah. For that moment. At least. For that moment, at least, exactly. So um, he kept, and then he, he, um, we got off the plane together, and I never looked up. I have no memory of looking up, reading any signs, or asking where my next gate was. I just followed him. And as I was following him, I not behind him, but I was with him. He was mm-hmm. with me, walking me. Mm-hmm. I looked around, and I, I realized that there were angels around us. Like, but they were just people, and we were cracking up, laughing. We were walking along, and I'm like, "There's one, and there's one," but not like thousands, but. But they looked like they human, were. They were just humans. regular. But but yeah. I and I don't know how I knew. I just kept yeah. saying, "Oh, there's one, and there's another one," and we're laughing. There was so much laughter and lightness, and so I I had I don't know how I got on the other plane. He just walked with me onto the other plane, and he told me he warned me. He gave me a warning. He said, "You are going to be deeply challenged." when you get off the plane. Mm. And I I didn't know what he was talking about, you know. I mean, I was just like having a blast. Yeah. And he said, and you're gonna have to get, go much, much deeper. So, um, so I got off the plane and the people were there to meet me and of course, I was so dehydrated that I was not in my right thinking mind. Mm-hmm. I was, I mean, they they were, saw that I was not mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing led to another. I ended up in a hospital in downtown LA, like the worst hospital in Los Angeles. Mm. And I was... I was laughing, I was crying. I mean, they just didn't know what was wrong with me. Mm. And um, it's so interesting how much I remember. Because you think if you're out of your mind, you just wouldn't mm-hmm. remember things. You just say, yeah. oh, what happened? Mm-hmm. But I was in a room, and of course, locked. And I was, there was one like eight or something working that night and there were homeless people everywhere and people were screaming mm. and the it was it's not clean yeah. and I was in there but I was like you know I I remember wanting to go to the bathroom and banging on the window and the guy handed me and handed a cup to me and I had to pee in like this big cup mm. like I couldn't go to the bathroom wow. They had. They did have you in a psych ward or something. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was, you know, I thought you were. Yeah. Totally out of your mind. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, but he was very had a really kind face, and he could see that I was really, you know. Yeah. So anyway, this part of the story I find kind of funny because I, I remember all night thinking, if I get out of here, I'm never coming back in this room. 
I'm never. In the meantime, they get the, my sister who lives in Cal, Southern California, not far from where I was going to do the workshop. She's at the hospital saying, can I see her? They wouldn't let her see me. And she kept saying she's been really, really sick. She's had C. diphyllitis, and I think she's dehydrated. They had no doctor look at me. They did not give me, I was begging for water. I mean, they just thought, saw me and thought, oh, she's just some crazy lady. Some crazy lady. Wow. And so they wouldn't let her see me, and I was there. And um, so in the morning, they let me out to go to the bathroom. And I, you know, grew up in the 60s. And so I made a conscious decision that I would lie down outside of the thing and put my hands over my chest like the pacifists do mm-hmm. and just refuse to go in. So I did that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> but I was still pretty out there, you know. I was really, mm-hmm. they still hadn't hydrated me. Mm-hmm. I was still, you know, and I don't have any memory of this angel being with me in this space. Huh. And I remember I had my shirt and I was showing my belly button to the, there was a cop standing over me and I was going, woohoo, <laughs> I mean, just, just. Well, that probably didn't help the case That didn't help the case. And I was laughing through it all, right. you know. Yeah. I didn't, I wasn't really on this plane, so I wasn't taking any of it seriously. Yeah. You're still. Uh, I was there. still out there. And I was, I remember, I wasn't crying. I was just saying, I'm not going back in there. Yeah. I'm not going in there. I'm sick. You know, mm-hmm. I knew I was physically sick. Mm-hmm. But I must have seemed pretty, you know. So when they tried to force me in, I, mm-hmm. I had an angel pin on me, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they tried to take my angel pin. And, I mean, it was just, mm. you know, this is my memory of it, you know. Anyway, the next thing I know, I'm injected with Haldol. I don't know what that is, but it's It's a drug that they give people who... Sedate. To sedate you. I mean, it completely... And um, I know this is an incredible experience that I rarely talk about. Yeah. Because I don't feel the need to talk about it. Yeah. But also, um, it's difficult to... Know that people are listening to this. Um, not you, of course. I wouldn't be telling you. Um, but it gave me such insight about what happens in what these happens to lots of people. To it happens mm-hmm. to lots of people who don't have the privilege that yes. I have. And you obviously got out pretty. Quickly, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Oh yeah. My husband. My husband flew out. I was yes. transferred to an incredible hospital. But what, how they treat people. That's how they amazing. treat people yeah. is just unbelievable. I was not a person. Yeah. And even though my sister was telling them anyway, they didn't make you go. Oh, they did. Oh, they sedated you. So then they, so they just you probably didn't even know what was happening after that. Right, right. And when I came to, is when my they allowed my sister to see me. I was able. I hadn't eaten anything in twenty four mm-hmm. hours. Mm-hmm. I had had once like a little tiny cup of water. Yeah. I I had to be hospitalized to rehydrate yeah. and to. Yeah. So of course. We, I wrote a, a long letter, mm-hmm. like within a two days, to the head of the hospital, and he had my sister and I come to see him, and he kept saying over and over, "Are you sure nothing like this has ever happened to you before?" And <laughs> I said, "Yes, nothing wow. like this has ever happened to me before." Yeah, 
and he said, um, boy, you really, you really, you're very high functioning. <laughs> it's like... For a crazy lady. For a crazy lady. They just and, don't understand. They just didn't understand. Yeah. yeah. Well, he totally understood that I had been really mistreated. Yeah. yeah. But the whole point of sharing this level with you is that... Um, is that I was warned of this. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was warned of this. And so I called my very, very good friend from childhood, Claire, who, you've, mm-hmm. who you know and who you've actually interviewed. Well, you introduced me to her, yes. And I explained to her about this angel that I had experienced and these angels. And she burst into tears, I believe, because she knew exactly what angel it was. She said, that's Archangel Michael. And she went in and she got a book out and she read to me, Archangel Michael is middle-aged in his 30s. She said he's, um, he is a person who is the, is the um, gatekeeper. Helps with travel. But the gatekeeper mm-hmm. of, so in Oh, like the, the gates like in, a, in the, an airport? No, the gates like the gatekeeper, he warned me that I was mm-hmm. going to be in a situation that was very difficult mm-hmm. and um, anyway I can't re- I wish I had brought the quote with me to share with you because it was so poignant it was so I mean I, I don't study angels I, I don't believe or disbelieve mm-hmm. everything for me is kind of a mystery mm-hmm. I just know my own experiences yeah. and um, and so what one would say oh of course you believe in angels because you've had these experiences but I just, I have a knowing, let's put it this way. Mm-hmm. I have a knowing that I have had it, been cared for mm-hmm. my whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I've been carried. Yes. And I have survived. Yes. And um, I feel so, some, just, I feel blessed for what everything that's happened to me in my life. Wow, that's an incredible statement to make. Well, because I don't know if I could have ever gotten to a place of this um, inner uh, content or peace that I feel most of the time. Yes without having gone through mm-hmm. a lot of what I've gone through. Yes. I think, you know, that perspective is so, I don't know any, any better word for it, that just un- amazing, unbelievable, because I think people who, there are other people who have been through trauma like that, and I think they tend to want to feel a lot of anger or don't understand why something happened but you, you know, you said it took a lot of work, you know, working through yeah. it. But you've come around to, you've been, you haven't shared some of what you do, which is, you know, you do spiritual mentoring for people. Mm-hmm. You lead meditation groups. You help me change my life by telling me about this life coach, Lael Jepsen, to ch- then who would then help me change everything for me, which is why you're the reason you're a huge part of the reason why I'm doing this work. Mm-hmm. And so that, and how does that connect to this? I mean, it connects, you know, it's mm-hmm. like all these chain of events. Yes. 
But would I have been doing this if that hadn't happened? You know what I mean? Uh-huh. It's like there's a chain of events. Well, you know, we have the um, the privilege in a way in our culture. I've had the means and the support to work through so much, but really, is my was my suffering any different than what's happening to the young children and the people in Syria mm-hmm. as we speak? Mm-hmm. Is it really that different from? what's happening in certain families. And it's not just poor families. Right. I mean, sexual abuse and trauma and um, torture, these things happen even with, pe- you know, with people with means. Oh, you yes. Know, yeah. Happens to people. A lot people. of secrecy around it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel so connected to the human experience. Mm-hmm on so many levels. And it was just four or five years ago that I told my daughter, I'd love to have a little baby in my life. And lo and behold, the next day, she sends me, forwards me an email from a friend of a friend who needs a, someone to take care of her infant just one day a week. And I said to my daughter, I wanted the yeah, child to be an infant, and it. I want it to be just maybe one or two days a week. And mm-hmm. And now it's been, this is my, maybe it's been six years now. Wow. Um, and that's how I ended up with you. Yeah, that's how you ended up taking care of Alice. But it's, first Aaron and then Alice. First Aaron and yeah. then Alice. But I don't, you know, I, it's people come to me and I just make a decision whether mm-hmm. it, it will work for me. Mm-hmm. But it's nothing that I set out to do and I don't know how long I'll do it. Like I have a new infant this afternoon who's three months old. And I just absolutely love being with them yeah i i love their i see the i see the divine in their eyes mm-hmm. you know from the moment they're born they're mm-hmm. they're not possessed by their thoughts yet yes they're not identified with the story that's running in the mind 2407 about who yes. i am and yeah that ego that ego mm-hmm. and i just and i'm present with them in a way that i I really couldn't even be present with my own daughter mm. at the time. Mm. I mean, I I took care of her. I was a good mom in so many ways, but I was I was surviving. Mm-hmm. And when I'm with the, these young babies today, I'm not surviving. Yeah. I'm really um, I'm really alive. Oh, can I share a poem with you that came to me when yeah. I was at this workshop? Mm-hmm. Okay, let me see if I can remember it. There's a little B to it. Baby, be a baby. Oh, baby, you gotta go back and get that baby out of the fire. Grab her. Get her out of there where the earth ends and the baby bends to hold and rock her own tiny body. Grab her. She wants to live, not survive, but thrive and tap to the music of the birds singing in the trees outside her bedroom window. Mm. Hmm. Wow. Who wrote that? It just came through me when I was... Oh, you just made it up? No, when I was at that Sharon Tobin workshop, it just came through. It came through you, but it's... Wow. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. Mm. I uh, there's so many more things I want to talk to you about, but I also know <laughs> that yeah, you probably have to go back to your life and 
I just want to say that Liz has a t- is so humble and hasn't talked about all the things she does, but you also do very, you're very active politically and are mobilizing people to speak mm-hmm. up now, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. that, that poem reminded me of your chants. Right. <laughs> so, I mean... Well, part of that comes from um, growing up and seeing how unfair certain things were. Mm-hmm. So when I'm in the when I'm in a situation that feels so imbalanced and so unfair, which is, I think, what's happening in society right now, mm-hmm. in, in our American society, um, that I just, I love to motivate people. I like my signs to be instead of against something. Like my sign yesterday said, you, a picture of the earth, because it was climate day, mm-hmm. and I did that march on Saturday, mm-hmm. and it said, you mean the world to me, Mom. And there's a little planet leaning into Earth. And so I just think, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's a saying that most people have heard, what you resist persists. So yes. I have a, when, when you talk about political activism, I don't like fighting against things. I like being yes. for things. I'm so in favor of that, too. Yeah. And I love marches because people, the marches I've been to have been positive, and lots of laughter and lots of positive, you know, statements. Mm-hmm. And here there's all these beautiful signs about Mother Earth and mm-hmm. loving the planet. And and this man walked by me in Brunswick yesterday on the sidewalk and he said, you're full of shit. <laughs> and I thought, wow. wow. And I just, inside I just started laughing. Yeah, I just, so it's hard to react to that. Yeah. It's like it's almost like he was unconscious about mm-hmm. what beautiful love he was looking at. Yeah, it's sad. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think I think part of it is I have found my voice, and so therefore, I just feel like it's so important for people to wake up mm-hmm. and realize that we need to come together. We live in a quote unquote democracy. So we need to come together and we need to make change for this planet. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking about taking a, um, a mediation course, a really good course that could help mediate and bringing like Trump supporters and, mm-hmm. you know, yes. anti-Trump people together. That would be wonderful. Because I think that that's where the, heal- the healing, say, so to speak, or the... Because what's happened is our politicians have have brought this. Yeah. Uh, they like it when people are fighting because then they can be in the other. background doing what yeah, they do. Exactly. And um, we've bought into it. And yep. I don't want to. I don't want to fight against um, people because I think we're all basically the same. Yes. Yes. And we we need that so badly. So I'm. I thank you for what you're doing. Mm, you're welcome. We need more and more and and I know that that energy you're putting out other people are picking up on it and I'm going to I'm sure they you know subconsciously maybe consciously say all right I'm going to make a loving sign too and I'm going to focus on what I want instead of what I don't want yeah and be all rooted in love and mm-hmm. well because it's the only love. thing that's real mm-hmm. and I know that because that message was given to me mm-hmm. at a young age mm-hmm. and it's something I've always known I never really had words for it until mm-hmm. I you know, needed the words and needed the information, but it's always been there. 
And you are sharing that message in so many ways in your with children that you care for, with people who are suffering and you're um, facilitating their healing or mm-hmm. helping them open to their own um, truth. And, and then on the broader scale with the people, you know, with the world. So, yeah, and we're just so lucky to have you in our lives on this earth, Liz. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing your light and love and grace Thank you, Rachel. Today. Thank you for listening to this interview. I hope you enjoyed it. This has been the Courageous Path podcast, and don't forget to subscribe or follow it here. To learn more about me, you can find me at www.soulfulworkconsulting.com, and I'm Rachel Horton White of Soulful Work Intuitive Consulting. Hope to see you next time and have a wonderful day.